I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Oh, the shark, baby. Has such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bites. Is- so welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark and Matt Macklin, and we are on to episode four in our Make or Break series. We've really enjoyed these so far, so we hope you have as well. We've heard from Anthony Crawler, Spencer Oliver, Carl Froch, the Cobra was on fine form last week, and it's just fascinating to hear the fighter recount what was going on at the time what was going through their head when they faced these kinds of encounters, the kinds of fights that they knew would either take them on to a next level or in some more extreme cases could almost have signalled the end. Certainly in all cases, their fights where had they lost them, then things could have turned out very, very differently. Uh, And this week we've recruited another one of our Sky colleagues and I don't think it's a coincidence that the kinds of boxers who enter punditry have had these kinds of careers with these kinds of fights because if you've got this kind of rich tapestry behind you then you have an awful lot to call upon when it comes to commenting on other people's careers and the man we've got with us today uh, to say that he had a rich tapestry of a career would be an absolutely horrific understatement because it is uh, it's Johnny Nelson Johnny how are you doing evening boys I'm doing fine actually it's raining where I'm what about you boys is it raining <laughs> Yeah, not bad here, actually. Bit cold, bit colder than it has been, but not bad. Two fights I've picked out from your career. Uh, There are plenty that we could have gone for, but two I've picked out because they are key fights and also because they're 10 years apart. And I will fill in some of the gaps uh, and you'll do the same as we go along. But so much happened that um, we could be here for a while, which is absolutely fine with us. The first one I'm going to pick out is from the 21st of May, 1989, when you boxed for the British title for the first time 
against Andy Strawn. And then 10 years after that, when you faced Carl Thompson, challenging for a world title for the third time at the age of 32. Now, these two, I would say, fit right into our bracket of make-or-break fights. So I'll just set a little bit of a scene with regards to the the first fight. So m- most people will know that, that you lost the first three fights of your professional career. But if you look at those fights, that's not all that surprising. You weren't done too many favours with the opponents. You had an undefeated fighter 11-0-1 as one of them uh, away from home. You had Magna Hafnar um, away from home in Denmark as well in your third fight, and he went on to become a world champion. Uh, you recovered to 6-5, and five, and it was at that point that you really kicked on. You won seven in a row, including the Central Area title, and a points win over Crawford Ashley, who went on to become a uh, European light heavyweight champion. So you're in good shape heading into this fight against Andy Strawn. And the interesting thing about Andy is that in many ways, he was the opposite to you because he won three ABA titles and went to the Olympic Games in 1980. So in terms of that amateur pedigree, polar opposites, really. 17-4-2 he was at the time. He was the reigning British champion, also a former British champion, having won it on one previous occasion. And it's in the super tent in Finsbury Park. And this is a night that's always fascinated me because top of the bill was Nigel Benn against Michael Watson. And it just seemed like a like a mad scene, a crazy situation. The type, kind of one that only boxing throws up all around. So if there's anything you want to add to that little, that little uh, preamble there, just to bring people up to date with, with where you were at the time of the fight, then please do. But then just, just fill us in on how the fight came about and just the whole thing. Well, um, it was interesting because uh, running up to that, I can remember for the first time, because boxing has no, no, it hasn't always been on the front and the back pages of the newspapers. I'm quite sure Matt will tell you that. Uh, and it, we always struggled to get corporate sponsorship because it had that tag. And I remember seeing Andy Strawn on the back of the Sun newspaper, big picture of Andy Strawn. And uh, this was before I was, I was moved to fighting, so I knew who he was. Uh, and I thought, that's a big deal, man. The man's in a, he's got his face in a Sun newspaper, back page, big spread. And uh, and then when it came, the fight came about. Uh, it was a it was a big looking back, and it, it was a big it was a massive moment uh, before, during, and after the fight. So before the fight, I can remember getting weighed in uh, in London, East London, upstairs. Thomas, I think it was Thomas Beckett. Uh, we were upstairs, and Nigel Ben was weighing in as well. Um, and, and when I went in, I had to go in all braggadocious. So it's all, I, all about me. It was all fun. Remember, I'm a kid that's going in. I didn't believe in in what I had, and I never thought I was good. I just thought they were bad, and I'll keep saying that. Uh, Andy Strawn, he'd done it. Andy Strawn was training with Nigel Ben. He was used as one of Nigel Ben's sparring partners in preparation to fight uh, Michael Watson. And Brendan, smart enough, he said, listen to me. He said, I'll be done in. This is at the weigh-in when we're all getting ready to weigh-in. I said, why? He said, because the concentration's on Nigel Ben. So they'll be using Andy Strawn as cannon, for, cannon fodder for Nigel. And so they'll not be paying much attention to Nigel. It'd be all about Nigel because he's fighting Michael. Uh, and when we got in there, um, we got upstairs and um, we got to weigh-in. Yeah, he was right. It was all about Nigel and about Michael. Andy was like a, a, a backing dancer, even though he was boxing uh, and the British title. And uh, I can remember Nigel, weighed, uh, we weighed in and 
and my a friend of mine who's a, a good and lifelong friend now, Kevin Adams, and he said, I remember you walking in, bouncing into the Wayne as though it was all about you. And he said, look at you, bloody Nova now. You know, because the black guy turns up from Sheffield with a paddy. And uh, and and he thought, he said, we're all there watching bounce in. And um, you got in the scales as though the Wayne was all about you. And it was all front. Brendan said, you go in there like you own it. Get on that scale. He whispered in my, in my, in my uh, smile, stand up straight. And so I'd get there trying to be pretty cool. Well, I'm very nervous inside. Andy Strawn, he's very quiet, very um, subdued. Uh, but it, 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 what Brendan, what Brendan had told me before I saw Andy, it, Andy confirmed that when I saw him go to get on the scales, he was like, it wasn't about him. You know, they weren't thinking about it. They didn't have his water. They didn't have stuff prepped for him. It was all about Nigel. Then Nigel obviously came in. It was all the hullabaloo started. Nigel got on the scales. Uh, uh, Michael Watson got on the scales. Then Nigel shot off uh, in his Porsche. I can remember looking out the window. He's doing donuts in the street outside and his cops either side. Everybody's all over the place. It was, it was proper like a film set. But all the time I looked at Andy, it was never about Andy. It was never, there was not enough. So, so I got what Brendan said. So that's so, so strike one. It came to the fight and we got to Finsbury Park. And Finsbury Park, again, I have never, and will never see anything like this in my life again where there was a massive circus tent in Finsbury Park. There were helicopters, not one, not two, three helicopters flying above with, with spotlights uh, coming down on the ground. I was actually in a film set, um, and it was, it was all set up. It was packed out. Security guards had, like, each security guard, like, two heavy, those big Rottweiler dogs in black suits, white shirts, black ties. And I'm thinking, wow, they really put, in, they put a lot into this. And... Um, Obviously, Andy and myself were fighting before Nigel. And so Brent said, you remember, it's not about him. It's about Nigel. So his head will be done in. You've got to do his head in. You've got to frustrate him. Get under his skin. You know, make him make a mistake. And he'll make one mistake. He'll make two mistakes. But you've got to make him make a mistake. Don't care what the crowd say. And so, I'm all, all right. We got in the ring. And, and Andy was strong. He was tough. But he was a bit robotic. And, and remember, he's fighting a kid that hasn't got the confidence to match his ability in me. So I'm picking Andy, popping Andy, frustrating Andy and slipping. So I'm not really throwing much. But Andy's getting, Andy needed to set his feet and let the shot go before he'd, he'd really try and put any power in. So he never really got any strong shots up. I think he threw a long left once, caught me in the chest. I thought, there's not much there. Then he got frustrated. I think it was around seven or around eight when I stopped it. He, he, he was out of pure frustration. He, he lunged and he was out of range and left himself wide open. And that's when he got clipped. So he was out of frustration, boredom, and 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 his head was done in. Every round, his, his corner man shouting his head off at him. But he's also thinking, I've got to get back to the dressing room for Nigel. So so, so he had, his head was done in. Uh, so, so the fight was done. That was it. I can remember going back on the coach to Sheffield. And when we're on the coach in Sheffield, uh, everybody from the, from a few people from the gym had come. We're on this coach, our own coach. And uh, my own man was there. Now I look back on it, I think that was a really, it was a really insensitive thing I did, but but it, I didn't realise what I was doing. And there was a guy, an old guy called Bill, uh, who used to come in the gym to collect the subs. He'd like clean the gym after everybody was there. And I'm sat on the, my own man sat there, uh, one seat behind me. No, he sat next to me. And um, he had the belt in his lap. And Bill said, can I have a look at the belt? And I went, yeah, sure. 
Uh, and this is this is where I knew I wasn't like many other fighters. And Bill said, I've seen one of these. I said, I'll tell you what, Bill, take it home and get it off you tomorrow. And my dad was like, what? He's like, Johnny, no, no, no. I said, nah, come on, with that. we'll have you back tomorrow. I'll get back tomorrow, Finn. So, so the belt didn't mean that much to me. It was never about the belt. So some kids, their goal is to become British champion, European, world. It, being British champion wasn't my goal. My goal, and it wasn't even to be world champion. I just thought, I've won. I've got it. I've won. Uh, at least I've come through. And, um, and we got back to Sheffield. Uh, Bill took, uh, took, the, took the belt. My dad was gutted. Like I just like stole, stole his wallet. I just say, why are you doing that? And I can imagine it was a proud time for my dad to to um, to go home with that Lonsdale bell, you know, and treasure it. But I wasn't thinking. I was thinking, oh, I will do this old man a favour. It's going to be in my house forever anyway. So I, I remember him being. I remember him being hurt, but I didn't realise it at the time how hurt it was. Hurtful it was what I did. It was a bit insensitive. We got to Sheffield. The, the coach stops us in um, uh, in Sheffield, Central Sheffield. My car was parked there. Uh, Brendan uh, and my dad, when he got off, because my dad loved going to the casino, he said, I'm going to go to the casino. I think he wanted to go and brag and bolster on his face, what his son had just done when the British title and he was on the undercard of Nigel Bin Michael Watson. I got in the car with Brendan. We drove back to, back to, back towards Ben to drop him off. And we drove, he got to his house. I pulled up, he said, just drive up the road. And it's about half three in the morning. And, um, and there's a graveyard at the top of Newman Road. He said, stop and drop me here. And I said, what am I dropping here for, Ben? He said, if you've done it, I'm going to walk through that graveyard because I've, because I've, I've, it's one thing that's always frightened me, one thing I, I thought I could never do. He said, so for you to do this, Johnny, for you to win the British title, you, from your amateur experience to how you started, for you to do this, I've got to conquer one of my fears because you swum the channel. And so he got out of the car. And as he got out of the car and he's walking towards the um, the graveyard, I'm like, shit, his wife, Alma's going to kill me because I'm like letting Brendan get out of the car. I said, Brendan, Brendan, no, don't. I'll, I'll come with you. This time I'm papping myself thinking, oh, my God, do I really want to walk through the graveyard in the middle of the night because I've got to come back from the car? So I'm, I'm stuck between the devil and the deep blue sea, shall I, shall I, shall I? So as Brendan's disappearing into the dark, I said, Brendan, Brendan, wait, wait. He went, it's all right, it's all right. Disappeared. Uh, and I'm sat in the car thinking, oh, my goodness. You know, pitch black, he disappeared into. I drove home, and and I can remember getting in bed that night, and I didn't know what I was more worried about. I was stuck between, wow, I just won a British title, and the fact that Brendan had just walked off into the graveyard in the middle of the night. So when I got up in the morning, I phoned him first thing. I said, Brendan, you all right? Did you get more? He started laughing. He said, yeah. He said, you should be proud of me, proud of yourself because you've made me conquer one of my fears. And you've conquered your fear. He said, but there's a long road ahead. And I can remember it so well. And and it was, it was, it was a it was now looking back on it, it was it was uh, part of the, the, the my my journey in life. Hey, 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 ki- hey kids. Hey everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it.
Listen to the Desiring Capital podcast coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go. So what was the feeling around that fight within the within the trade and the boxing fraternity? Firstly, were you his, he was the champion, were you his mandatory? Uh, were you expected to win that fight? Was he expected to win that fight? What did people think was going to happen? I was not expected to win. Remember, I, uh, I, I'd, I'd come through and slipped through. And, 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 the, and the, the problem was at that stage, if you didn't have an unbeaten record, if you didn't have a, some sort of amateur pedigree, you were clusters. You weren't. They didn't even pay attention to you. The likes of Colin Hart didn't write about you. Might give you one line in the Sun newspaper. Uh, the boxing news, unfortunately, they never really, really gave you credit if you were up against somebody that had had that kind of pedigree. Um, so, so I wasn't expected to win. Uh, and so, when we went down on the on the coach to 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 London. Uh, we're down there in the smoke. It's a big deal going to London. It's all right for you guys, you live here, but it's a big deal coming from Sheffield to go to London. So when I got down there, nobody expected me to win, which was good. Um, and, 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 and by that time, I'd not gone through the embarrassment of the De Leon fight, but I just had the negative reputation of coming from the Winkerbank gym where we all walk in the gym backwards uh, and we're all dancers, we're all, we, can't, we all slap. And that's the rep our gym had. So, so, there was nothing formidable about me for them to, to sit up and pay attention. So the, the, the people that are supposed to know what's best and, and how, they, how they understand the game, I was written off. I wasn't expected to win. But how did, what was the feeling between you and Brendan and in the gym? Because, you know, Brendan's unorthodox always was to say the least, wasn't he? And, and, and I mean, you spoke many times, Johnny, he was really good mates with my old amateur coach who was from Ireland as well, Paddy Benson. And they were both anti-establishment. Brendan probably even more so than Pat. And, you know, you, you, in a lot of ways, you, you were you're unusual. You'd lost your first three. You, you know, you, you were coming for the British title. But I can't imagine that Brendan had any doubts that you were going to win. Matt, you know what? I think you hit the nail on the head. Brendan was anti-establishment uh, because they gave him that much stick in the amateurs. And he knew... In the amateurs, I got disqualified probably six of my 13 fights anyway. Uh, they knew they, they didn't like his style, hands-down style. They want you to stand up straight, hands up, one, two. So every time we fought and the referee would pull you saying, get your hands up, Brendan would be going mad. The amount of times ago, Brendan got through out of the corner and, and he'd be shouting from a ringside seat, I'm telling you what to do, and a bucket man would be dealing with you when he came back. So he you, you was anti-establishment. So to him, it was a personal crusade for somebody like me to get inside the mix and win a British title because the people that say it can't be done, he's trying to say it can be done and I'll prove to you it can be done. You don't have to be a, 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 an, Olymp, a, an amateur genius or a, an unbeaten fighter to get there, to get on top. So it was a personal crusade. So now, now I understand that's time had gone on when he said I was one of his most successful stories because I helped him fight the establishment and prove them wrong and prove his system worked. And, he, and even going into the gym, he, and he always said it, he never changed. He said, just listen to me. But he said, you haven't got the confidence to match your ability, but when you do, you'll never be beaten. And I didn't quite grasp and understand it at the time when he said it. It's not until I became world champion that I actually believed, I thought, ah, I know exactly what he's saying. And, and, and the, 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 the crux of it is, 
there was many fighters in the gym that that we all got the same speech, but just didn't listen. All they had to do was stick it out and listen. I stuck it out through thick and thin, through through tribulations and everything. But I, but when I eventually brought that Lonsdale belt home, it was like I never ever thought I'd lose it. I just didn't, even though I didn't have the confidence and think I was the best fighter. I didn't never. I didn't think there was anybody that could beat me in Britain. And that's so messed up that way of thinking. I just thought this is mine for life, and and it, and it was. But I mean, even listening to you t- talking about how you know he got dropped off and walked through the, you know the um, the graveyard, graveyard. On one of his fears, and you know we, we listen. We're always talking about boxing coaches and training programs, and you know you've got you've got padmen, you've got conditioners, you know, and you've got some good boxing coaches, and then you've got these real teachers, which are really you know they're not Brendan England going to take anyone in twelve rounds on the body bag. But they're almost like philosophical, mm. you know, teachers, like life teachers, really. Like a Customato, you know, he, you know, he wasn't taking Tyson on 15 rounds on the mitts, but he was teaching him about fears and things like this. And, and, and Brendan, for you, really, I mean, you're probably the, the, you exemplify a lot of those lessons. Like he said to you about going into the weigh-in against Andy Stroon, it'll all be on it. He was looking way past the technical, the left jab, the right cross, or the, you know, you know the physicality. Mental warfare. That's what I'm saying. Like, you go in his house, and he, he has books in his house of philosophy, uh, 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 leaders in, in war, uh, history, and, and so, and, and so, and, and, and boxing history. And, and so, you think, I think about what he actually taught me, and it was more mental than physical. Physical was obviously a big part of it, but the mental side of it was everything. And so he saw my, me as a broken arrow, and he and he said, "If you if you have the confidence, to, and he, he, he grew me, but in a positive way, and and he did it with us all. And that's why there was guys in my gym that were much, 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 much more talented than I did, but never achieved a quarter of what I did. The reason why they didn't is because they didn't listen, because they didn't when he'd be." philosophizing when he'd be when he'd be trying to talk he talking riddles would you say you've either got to try to find a way through that riddle and then he, he'd make it clear what he's saying to you or you walked away uh and 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 i was always curious and i was always i always loved the story i always loved the stories what he told me and i was envious of his kids i'm thinking he's your dad can you imagine what the stuff you talk about so so all the time it was all more of a mental job than anything else. Because even when I, when I beat Andy Strawn, uh, again, each fight, you'd get sick of it. But I think I was defending against a guy called Ian Bullock. And Ian Bullock, he, he, he was, he was I, I boxed him in the amateurs. And he beat me up, literally beat me up in the amateurs. And Brendan said to me, um, he said, right, when it comes to the weighing, Ian Bullock was from a mining village just up the road from here. It was from a mining village just up the road from here. So, so, and at the time, there's a miners' strike, all the stuff's going on with the miners. And Ian was there with his friends and everything. He said, When you go to the weigh in, I want you to go by yourself, put a shirt and tie on, big long trench coat on, trench coat on. I want you to, to, to uh, just go in there by yourself. And they're going to say, Where's Brendan Even He doesn't think you'd win because this kid's beating you in the amateur. 
Amy says, I said, Brent, I've got to go by myself. He said, yes, by yourself. So I drove up to the, you know, I white Ford Sierra had. Uh, I walked up to the, um, uh, drove up to the, to the where the, the press conference was, walked in and, and true to form, Brennan had it spot on. I got in there. They said, where's Ingle Nelson? He doesn't even think you'll win. And, and Brennan said to me, I want you to build his confidence up for him to think you're still the same guy you boxed in the amateurs. So it's all mental warfare. And when it came to fight, I think it lasted two, three rounds and smashed it. And this kid couldn't understand how that kid he beat up as an amateur had come through. And so so going down to London to fight Andy Strong and seeing all the flashing lights and Nigel Benn and Michael Watson and, and all the cameras and, and everything there, to me, I was as excited and taken aback like everybody else, thinking, oh, my God. But it was an experience uh, uh, so to give me the wisdom. So when I came back to Little Old Bowls over, I'm thinking, I'm just boxing Finsbury Park. I've just seen big time. You know, and so, um, so it was. It was all. It was all a, a building platform. But he always said, "It's not going to be a smooth ride." And you took your, that. That win took your confidence to another level and your self belief. Yeah, yeah. So, so to a level that's got me to the next step. It didn't take me yeah. to a world class level, but it, it took me to a level where where I knew domestically, uh, uh, the, the kids I fought domestically weren't good enough. That had not experienced what I'd experienced. And so, and I, I still thought I was on a hustle. So I remember when I won the British title, I didn't think I'm good. I thought I was on a hustle. I thought, bloody hell, I'm just boxing crap kids here. I'm all right. Uh, and so I never, I, up to that point, I thought everybody I boxed were just not very good. And it, now I, I realise I was disrespecting them saying that. I was actually better than what I give myself credit for. So what was going through your mind when you first heard that you had been chosen for what was a voluntary for Andy Strong because he was the champion as you say he was the home fighter you were recruited supposedly to be somebody that he would beat and look good against in the super tent alongside Nigel Benn and then he'd take a seat ringside and watch his stable mate win that fight and this is what was supposed to happen so I'm always interested by this when did you first Brendan would have got a call and he would what? He would discuss it with you or he would decide whether you were going to take it or not? And what went through your head when, when you were told you are fighting for the British title in a tent in Finsbury Park? Brendan told me I was boxing Andy Strong for the British title. I said, really? He said, you can beat this kid. He didn't ask me. He told me. He said, you can beat this kid. Uh, he said, it's perfect. And, 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 I, and I trusted him from day one, never to put me in a situation where, where it didn't benefit me. Even in fights, I lost. He put me in a situation where I still benefited emotionally, mentally, prepping for the future. Uh, so when I got the call to fight Andy Strong, uh, and Brendan told me I was fighting him, um, once, if he believed in it, you know, once he, he said you're doing it, I knew he thought I could win. I knew he thought at, at that point, you know, I knew he thought I could win. Because the difference between boxing Andy Strong and being called as his... Because I was basically meant to lose. I was his piece of meat. I was his soft touch. I was that like, like, you know, we've got this kid here. We'll get rid of this point and then we'll move on. I don't know if it was Andy Strong's chance to, to obtain the Lonsdale belt or he just won it. It might have been his chance to pull, win the Lonsdale belt from that fight. He'd won it and, and he'd won it against... Um... He'd won it against TJ, then he'd lost it, um, and then he'd won it back again. Um, so this would have been his third British title fight. At that point, you needed three wins in British title fights. So, so yeah, if he'd beaten you, then he would have won it outright. And that, and that was it. So, again, I was the soft touch. 
And I can remember TJ, TJ was a massive, chunky African cruiserweight. And he, he, he totally outboxed and peppered TJ and, 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 and give him hell. And TJ was always one on the periphery. He probably would uh, measure him to modern day. Uh, he's passed away now. I'd measure him to someone like Derek Shizora. Big unit. He can fight, look strong and solid, uh, aggressive. And he bulldozed you through if you let him. And Andy did a job on him. Uh, so so when Andy, when I was pulled in for Andy, uh, Andy Strong, I don't think Andy Strong gave me the time of day. So it's a, it's a done deal. And, and you wouldn't, because if they realistically did, there's no way they'd, they'd not pay him as much attention as what they should have done uh, in preparation for the fight. They, they overlooked me. Uh, they, they thought, and that's why I got most of my opportunities, because... I was overlooked. They'd look at the record and think, nah, this kid's won and lost. You'll beat him. You know, and that's what they did. And that's why up until boxing for the world title, every shot, title shot I got was because uh, um, was because they thought I was beatable. Uh, I, could, I was overlooked because I thought they thought I was a tough touch. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. It's interesting stuff. It really is. 13 and 5 going into that fight. I mean, if you'd lost that fight, what would that have done to you, do you think? Uh, I'd have plodded on. Um, Brendan said, you know, it's all about learning. And he said, and, and I believed him. I believed him. Remember, I lost the first three and I kept boxing on. I kept boxing on and I believed him. I didn't think boxing was my career, was my life, because I was fighting in five fight chunks. After five fights, I thought, that's me done. I'm going to get a proper job. And then I thought, I'll have another five fights. And I'll have another five fights. I won the British title. I thought, I'll get the Lonsdale belt. Uh, uh, and then then I'm done. Boxing didn't define me. Boxing wasn't my life. Boxing wasn't what uh, uh, I measured myself by. I didn't think I was like you, Matthew Matlins. Uh, coming through where, you know, you, I didn't think I was like the Nigel Benz. I didn't think like I was like the, the Harold Graves because these guys had pedigree. These guys had done everything in the amateurs. So I didn't think I was anything like them. I just thought I was just lucky to be in that in that spot. And, and me talking like that, Brendan understood that I didn't actually realise what I could do. And that's why he said, you know, it'll take, you'll not come good until you're in your 30s. I just won a British title. He said, you'll not come good until you're in your 30s. Uh, and I thought, I won't be boxing when I'm, t- when I'm that old. <laughs> no way. That's old. And uh, he was spot on right. Well, we'll now fast forward to 10 years later when you were in your 30s. Uh, and I'll fill in some of the gaps many people will be familiar with with plenty of this. It was two fights after you beat Andy Strawn that you took on Carlos de Leon for the WBC title. Uh, that finished in a draw. And as a result of which, I don't think it's too strong to say that you were... You were radioactive after that. You were treated like a, a bit of a pariah by the boxing establishment, by by TV, and it was a, a difficult road for you from that point onwards. Everybody questioning your backbone, your minerals. Yeah, you had all sorts of things slung at you. You really did. Uh, but you went on to win the, the European title in Germany, which is no mean feat. But then in 1992, you challenged for the IBF in, in, uh, in the USA against James Waring, and that didn't go your way. 
And then after that, you went on a little bit of an odyssey. You hit the road. Uh, you boxed a lot of heavyweights. You boxed all over the place. I've got them written down here. The UK, but only twice in 10 fights. France, South Africa, Australia, Belgium, Thailand, Brazil. Um, lost a few, lost four of those. Uh, and then you were back back in the UK. Got six wins in a row. Regained the British and the European. Uh, and then came the fight in March 1999 against Carl Thompson. It's your third shot at a world title. You're 32. And I think it's probably fair to say that this is it if you're going to become a world champion. Uh, and Thompson was 24-4, and four, formidable fighter. Um, won the title in Germany against Ralph Roccagiani, which is, again, a serious accomplishment. He was winning the first fight and then his shoulder went, didn't it? And... And it wasn't an accidental foul. So it was, it, he lost by TKO essentially. And then he had the two fights with, with, with Eubank. So again, this is a good make or break scenario because is that fair to say this, this, this is your third and final shot of the world title? And if you can't... I promised myself there was no fourth chance. So I boxed the first time against the Leon, like you said, I drew for that. I wasn't over that emotionally. I wasn't... Uh, and, and that 10 years between beating Andy Strawn and, and fighting Carl Thompson, uh, if I could go back and change it, I wouldn't change a thing. The best thing that could, ha- could have happened to me in hindsight at the time, it was the worst. Being, being ostracised and having to travel, travel all over the world as a sparring partner was what made me the fighter that beat Carl Thompson. What, what, because the penny had to drop for me. No matter how much Brendan told me, and talked to me and said, you've got to do this. And told me history and told me stories of other fighters. No matter how much he went over it and over it and over it again, he just wasn't sinking in. So the, the final hurdle was to send me as a sparring partner away because then you're on your own. Then, you're, then you've got to decide if you really want it or not. And, and, and it was genius. You just said, it's what you got to do. You're by yourself. There's nobody holding your hand. So if you want to do this, you're going to do this for you. Uh, but it's going to affect every aspect of your life if you don't. So he kind of said, do it, do what you want, but do what I'm telling you. Um, so when it came to boxing, Carl Thompson, that if you, if anybody can see the fight, uh, the, the difference between the two fighters, Johnny Nelson against Andy Strawn and Johnny Nelson against Carl Thompson, you saw a man in a man's body in the fight against Carl Thompson, whereas you saw a boy in a man's body in the fight against Andy Strawn. So, so I knew when I got in the ring, when I was going to fight Carl Thompson, again, I was so acting mental warfare because I'm, I'm groomed, I'm, I'm whispered in my ear by Brendan telling me how to think and looking at how we operate, looking at how we, he used uh, uh, philosophy on fighters. Uh, so, so I now know what I've got to do. I know Carl Thompson being into amazing fights with Chris Eubanks. I used to be a fan of Carl's. I see him knock people out, an unbelievable physique on him. And I was a fan of his. I used to go and watch him with my mates. And say, what's this guy here? And then I can remember seeing Carl before we even, I knew that uh, because it was all about Carl Thompson now. And we were coming through, even though I was kind of before him, obviously came on the scene. I knew that we would fight. We, we were on the same weight, but we could fight eventually. And there was a club in, in Warrington called Mr. Smith's. And uh, my girlfriend at the time walked in the club and uh, she said, there's a guy over there. He's been chatting me up. He said he knows you. I really. So I looked on the dance floor. Carl Thompson doing all these soul spins, looking funky on the dance floor. I said, I don't know him. 
And uh, so he was just trying to chat me with a girlfriend up. And uh, oh, that was it. So this time now I'm collecting bits of information, not realising it's going to come useful. Uh, eventually, Carl boxed Chris Eubank. Uh, I should have boxed a winner of Carl and Chris. And, and um, Chris's trainer, uh, what's his name? The, um, what's his coach called? I can't remember his name. Um, Ronnie Chris, Davis. Chris's coach, a bald guy from down south. Ronnie um, Davis. Ronnie Davis, yeah. Ronnie Davis afterwards said to me, if Chris won, we were never going to fight you. Because I'd already sparred with Chris before that. And I batted Chris in, in sparring. And so, 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 and Ronnie Davies. Oh, was that interview, uh, Johnny, when uh, Brendan, when Chris Eubanks on the top table and Frank Warren and Brendan grabs the, or grabs the mic and he goes, What are you on about? You came down to my gym, I gave you 300 pounds. Johnny Nelson stood you on his head. Yeah, <laughs> I, it was funny. But was that, that, that's what I'm saying. So, so, and that's what I'm saying. So he knew. And he, that was funny, that because Chris was so mad. It was like a little child stamping his feet in the ring. Tell him to stand still. Tell him to stand still. And he was there as um, he was there as as, as Harold Graham's sparring partner. And uh, and he stayed there until he knocked uh, until he put Harold Graham out, knocked Harold Graham out, and then he just left. He just left. Once he knew he hit if he hit Harold, he got rid of him. He knocked him out. But Harold didn't turn up one day to to train. And I trained with spar. I spar with with Chris and just mugged him off. So anyway, so so Carl boxed uh, Chris Eubanks, the first fight. And, and unfortunately, the cruiserweight division is not a glamorous division, so there's not many names where people recognise or know. So so then, uh, so I thought, well, it'd be good if, if Chris wins, because if Chris wins, and I box Chris, everybody will know who I am. Everybody will know what I could do. Everybody will be, you know, they'll know who Johnny Nelson is. And, and it'll be a bit of redemption because, uh, again, I was a pariah. Nobody, nobody liked me. I just got stick in the... In the newspaper, they got stick in the in the in the boxing news. People just district proper disrespect me, and so um, I wanted Chris to win. But then, obviously, he and Carl bought, but Carl beat the first fight. It was an amazing fight. Really, it was pure war. And I think the media wanted uh, Chris to win because it was box office, and uh, uh, Chris lost. So so they 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 an instant rematch. It was a rematch they they wanted, and so. In, I didn't get so, step aside. In the rematch. He stuck Pardon? In the, he, I was at the rematch in Sheffield. He closed his eye, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. And in the, so in the first fight, Chris showed so much cojones and, 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 and determination. And it was such an amazing fight that they, they did a second one. And, and they, they, I didn't even get step aside money. You know, so I'm sat there. And, and Brendan, I think it was probably, I can't remember. It must have been 13 months before... I, 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 um, before I got the, sh- the crack, and he wouldn't let me fight anybody else. Be- and, um, and, uh, and, I, and, and the reason why is because he said, if anything happens and you lose your chance, you'll never get another chance again. And, and the reason why he said that, and what compounded that was Jonathan Thaxon was fighting a guy, was, was, had it, was lined up to box for the world title. And, and, uh, he want, he was begging Ben, said, Ben, I want to fight. I want to fight. I'm, I'm sick of waiting. I need to fight. And Ben said, look, be patient, let him fight, then you'll fight him then. You've got to crack at the world title, you'll be straight for it. And I think Jonathan Faxton ended up pestering Brendan. And Paddy Byrne said to Brendan, um, he said, I've got to fight a Jonathan will be. His name was Emmanuel Augustus, I think his name was. Yeah. And uh, and Jonathan got into fighting and, and he got battered. He got beat up. He lost his chance for to, to fight for the world title. And he just took a chance that he shouldn't have done. 
And Brendan said, you saw what happened to Jonathan? This is not going to happen to you. You've got to crack for the world title. You are guaranteed to fight the winner of these two. Sit tight. And God, God, good on him, Brent, because you, you know it's like, Matt. If, you, if you're not fighting, you ain't getting paid. I wasn't getting paid. I didn't have a job. I had no money coming in. Brendan gave me £250 every week. He said, but don't tell anybody. Yeah. If you tell anybody, I'm going to stop paying you. And I'm like, and he said, you keep your mouth shut. Tell anybody I'm giving you this, I'm going to stop. He said, there you are. Live on. £250 every week to live off. I thought, this man's not doing this for a slap on the back to say, look at me. Look what I've done. Every week. So that's the only reason why I can last and, and not fight for 13 months or however long it was. And I had to wait. And, and that's what I lived on. So when it came to the chance for a fight again, I thought, I thought to myself, this guy has invested in me, in belief. And he's put his money away. His mouth is. He didn't say, Johnny, I want this money back when I fight. He said, hey, that's yours. That's yours. That's yours. Every, every week. The only rule was I couldn't tell anybody. That was the only rule. So I knew it was from the goodness of his heart because he was a good man. And um, so when it came to fighting Carl in the build to the fight, he's, uh, again, it's the psychology of the fighter. You've got to understand that he knew Carl was hot on his sleeve. He knew Carl was very sensitive. He knew Carl was having trouble with Frank Warren at the time, so he's very paranoid. He knew Carl... Um, um, uh, he, knew, he just knew he was a sensitive soul. They said, you've got to get him angry. You've got to make him fucking hate you. And I'm like, what? what? He said, you've got to get him to hate you because if he hates you, he's not going to think straight. And if he doesn't think straight, he's not going to be able to execute all the plans he's had in the gym to get you. So get under his skin. And, oh, okay, so, um, so it came to the press conference before the fight, a few weeks before the fight. No, week, fight week it was. And, um, and Carl turned up with Billy. Uh, John Ingalls sat on my left. Brendan sat on my right. The promoter was sat in the Frank sat in the middle. But before Frank sat down, me and John Ingalls sat down. So John was on my far left. Uh, uh, Carl was sat on my right, far right with Billy next to him. So Frank was sitting in the middle. And um, and so I knew we could hear. Nobody else had sat down. We we're waiting for it to turn up. So I knew we could kind of hear the conversation. Very serious. Wasn't smiling. So so. I remember the time when I saw him in the Mr. Smith's in Warrington, the nightclub. So I knew that's where he frequented. He didn't see me. I saw him. So, and I can remember, I don't know how I knew his wife's name. I've no idea how I knew his wife's name. So, uh, so John sat there and I leant forward. I said, uh, I went to his club around here, uh, Mr. Smith's in Warrington. So straight away, he's going to think, I know that club. He said, uh, I met this bird. The name was... Uh, I can't remember his wife's name, but it was I, I used the same name as his wife. I've never met his woman. And he went, oh, he went, oh, yeah. Then I leapt forward. I didn't say anything, but Carl thought I was because Med's going on art. And then I nudged John and we sat back and started laughing. So Carl straight away thinking, oh, you're talking about my missus. You, because all of a sudden everything came. Mr. Smith is true. He goes to Mr. Smith. That's his wife's name. Johnny's talking about seeing the club. He's thinking, why is my wife not telling me this? So I could see Carl rocking his chair like that, looking back was forward. Then he got up and went to the corner. I seen him on the phone. His head's going like this. He's, so he's having an argument on the phone. And I can imagine his poor wife saying, I don't even know what you're talking about. He's lying. Well, why does he know what club it is? How does he know your name? So I've got a rattling this week. He sat down. He was fuming. And if you find an old poster of Carl and myself, um, of the five, 
you you look at Carl's face, and that was the, that was just before that that this happened. Me and him have got to stand face to face, and and you can see us both. And I've got a smirk on my face, and I'm talking to the blind side of the camera, saying, "I've got you, haven't I? I've got you." And he's just he's clenching his fist, and he's rocking backwards and forward. And the, the photographer took the shot, and I just stepped back, just stepped back, because Carl he was he was enraged because. He was angry. I got on his skin, um, and 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 he kept doing stuff like saying, um, uh, "I kept saying I was getting paid three times more than what I was getting paid," which I knew. Do was more than <laughs> <laughs> you know, so do his head in. So he's thinking, "Why is Frank paying you more than me?" And I'm the champion. Yeah. You know, I knew that Frank. So he's thinking everybody around him hates him. Everybody around him is having it all. His wife, his Frank. You know, he's, he's getting paranoid about everything. Um, and then, so, so He's now... He's up a lot of emotional energy, isn't he? There you go. There you go. That's, the idea is for him to stop thinking tactics and think hate. Because you know, if you're, the cooler you are in the ring, the better chance you have. And so I've got him to think hate. I've got him to proper hate me. He's got to do his nothing. So now he thinks everybody's against him. At the time, Brendan and, and Naz had fallen, had, had, had parted company. And Naz was, was, was trying to... Uh, in my opinion, undermine uh, 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 Brendan, what he was doing. And so Naz endorsed uh, uh, Carl's camp. They all came in with <coughs> T-shirts on. I, I gather they, they were offered money to, to you know, to, to wear his gear and Naz, you know, just to try and get at Brendan. And uh, because Naz knew it was my track of the world title. So he wasn't just getting at Brendan, he was getting at me. So me and Naz were done from that point. And so... And I can remember seeing them all milling around the, the way and around the fight in the Nas T-shirts. Was that still with Frank Warren at this point? No, he'd left Frank. That's why, well, that's why he... That's he probably trying to get Frank too, was he? Yeah, so that's part of the reason why, why, uh, why he and Brendan fought, because Nas wanted Brendan to leave Frank as well. And Brendan said, what about the rest of my boys? Why would I do that? You know, so, 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 so Nas left Frank... Uh, he wanted he, he wanted me to leave. He wanted Brendan to leave. He said, "No, I'll stay where we are." So that the risk started. So the fighters, uh, all of Mark, most of Carl's team came in with with Princess and Hamid t-shirts, and Carl refused to do it. He said, "Unless you give me money, I ain't doing it." So Carl was always his own man, and but they, obviously his team, Billy Graham, but they're thinking we've got to get on the Johnny Skin, his best mates, sponsored to try and give me that impression as though as though Naz was even on their side. Even in the build-up, I knew friends that had spar went to spar with Carl to help him. Harold Graham, I used to live with a guy. He went and spar with him in preparation for me. Paul Silky Jones, me and him had grown up together. He went and spar with Carl Thompson in, in preparation for me because he wanted people with that unorthodox style. And they weren't coming back and reporting to me saying, John, he does this, he does that. So straight away I'm thinking, really? You're supposed to be my boys. You're not even, you're not, I only found out secondhand. They never told me. Uh, afterwards, Paul Silky Jones told me he was former uh, light middleweight world, world champion. Paul Silky Jones said to me, he said, um, uh, he said, Johnny, I told him, I said to Carl, look, you will never, Johnny won't get tired because Carl was planning on trying to make me gas myself out the first half of the fight and then jumping on the second half of the fight. And, and Silky knew I was fit and he said, listen, you will never get Johnny tired. He will do that for 20 rounds. So you've got to think your game plan. And they wouldn't, he said he wouldn't listen. So it came to the fight itself. Uh, Dominic and John said, 
uh, tell him you're going to knock him out in five. Just In fact, Dominic put it out. Johnny Nelson said he's going to knock Cole Thompson out in five rounds. I never said that. I've never <laughs> predicted a round. So, it was so, a fitness so, battle, didn't it? I've never done that. So everybody's <laughs> saying that. Some guy, don't know what you're doing. He said, look, if you keep making people think you're going to knock him out in five rounds, then he's going to think, oh, yeah. And he's not going to do anything for four rounds and wait for that knockout and then turn it back on you and think you're going to gash yourself out. So he said, but you're four rounds up. So from round one to round four, you've won round one, two, three, four, and you're probably in round five because he's waiting for you to put it on him. So you're, you're up already. I'm like, genius. So I started saying, yeah, I'm going to knock him out in four rounds. And listen, he will not get past four rounds. Trust me. I'm five rounds. He will not get past five rounds. Trust me. So that's, that's, that's what you're putting out. It's all over the place. Nelson said he's going to do Thompson in five rounds. And Thompson's mad now. Uh, so it came to five. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. But but sorry, sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt there, Johnny. What but what what did the again, what was the what was the consensus amongst the the trade and the British boxing public? What did they think of you saying that? And what did people expect him to win that fight? Because from what I remember, people People did expect him to take care of you. I remember watching the fight with a mate of mine who at the time followed boxing uh, week by week more closely than me. And I remember asking him, you know, what do you make of this one? And he just said, Thompson all day. Um, he said something fairly disparaging. I think it was along the lines of Nelson hasn't got the bollocks for it at this level. Um, and Thompson will, Thompson will run him over. Um, that is spot on. That is spot on. And that's exactly what, the, even guys in my own gym, I can remember Pelly Reed and Jonathan Thaxton. I was training and, and we were the last three in the gym. I was just getting ready and Pelly and Jonathan, I saw them down the end of the end of the ring, end of the gym. They used to do mixed martial arts, so I'm sure really they were they were flatmates. Um, and they came up to me and he said, Do you think you're gonna win, Johnny? And I thought, why would you ask me that? I went, Yeah, of course I do. You know he's really tough, don't you? You know he can fight, he's tough, he can bang. And so you could tell these two would have their heads together. I thought. We're all in the same gym, and you're asking me if I think I'll win. So, obviously, these guys think I'll lose. Everybody's saying Nelson hasn't got the ball. You know, it will be on the back foot. Thompson will walk through him. Nobody gave me a chance. And I can remember after that time when I was in the gym with Jonathan Thaxton and Pele, Brendan came in because we were going somewhere. I think we were going to a school up the road to do a talk. And, um, and, and Brendan came in. We got in the car. We're driving up Newman Road. And I said to Brendan, Brendan, I can't see how I'll lose. He said, yeah. I said, but people think I can't win. He said, I, he said, why do you say that? I said, well, I know Thaxton and, and Pelly don't think I'll win. I see everywhere, but he's thinking I won't win. I said, I don't understand what they're saying because I can't see how I'd lose. And so Brennan said, well, that's all you need to know, isn't it? It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. It's what you know. And I honestly couldn't see how Carl had beat me because, I, because now you've seen that you met, you, I'm a fighter that believes in every aspect of himself. I believe in my ability. 
I believed I was the best in the world because I'd sparred with the best in the world. I'd spent years on the road. I knew nobody had walked in my shoes. So the only frustrating thing was I couldn't make it official. Nobody believed me. I was like the boy that cried wolf. I got one crack. I got a second crack. So it came to a third crack. Nobody thought I'd win. They all thought I'd choke it. They all thought I'd bottle it. They all thought I just didn't have the gojones for it. So, so now, in my head, I said, they have got to drag me out of this ring. And I'd never said that before. And I've never said it afterwards. But I said, they have got to drag me out of the ring on a stretcher before I lose tonight. And that was in my head. I thought, there's no way in a million years. And so it came to fight night. And, uh, and I could see when it came, brought a lot of people over from Manchester for the fight. And there were a few gangsters from Manchester shouting some right abuse. Give me the gun side. Nelson! And I'm like, and I walked out. And I thought, you, if you, again, if you look at that Johnny Nelson coming out of the dressing room to the Johnny Nelson that walked out against Carlos De Leon, boy and man, like, night, day and night, completely different. I was so angry because I thought, you all think I'm a bottle. You all think I can't fight. All right, I'll show you. I mean, now I believed in what I could do. So as I'm walking to the ring, uh, I, I could just, Johnny, I mean, Johnny, just before you go on that, that, that difference in be, between being the, the boy in the man's body, being a man in a man's body, that period of time building up to this where you were in Germany and you went on the road and you were sparring partners and you would be in solitude and loneliness and having bad days in the gym and good days. In, that's what that's what got that's what made that transformation. That's what made your man in a man's body, wasn't it? Ready for this yeah. fight now. And that what you've just said there is what Brendan told me. He said, Johnny, nobody's walked in your shoes. Nobody's done what you've done in the last 10 years. Nobody, it, not even just that, all your boxing career, all the criticism, all the all the abuse, the way you've been treated, nobody's watching your shoes. You deserve this. That was his final speech. You deserve this. Because if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. Because you've been through every aspect of fighting. You've won, lost, and drawn, and been robbed. You've traveled the world. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, and this was his mantra. This was his speech. Before I went out, they said, so if you don't do it today, you don't deserve it. But you've done everything to deserve it. Expect success. And I'm like, he's right. I'm like, I tick, tick. I go get up in the morning, three o'clock in the morning to go running. I'd experienced staying in slums. I'd experienced winning, losing. I'd experienced getting ripped off, being, being, I'd been, experienced it all. I thought, nah, he ain't beating me. No in a million years. And so, and so as I walked out there, I actually liked the booing from the crowd because I was used now. My skin was like rhinoceros skin. I'd, I'd got that much stick. I've seen all the, the slagging I got about me having no spine, being a coward. I thought, and I loved the, the, I loved the hatred. I loved the bulls. And I thought, all right. And it pumped me up. I thought, the worst thing you got to do. So, so I walked in the ring and I walked through and I'm nodding. And I'm thinking, all right. And I, I, I was a complete, I look at that person walking in. I don't recognize him. Arrogant, bombastic. I did to say, I don't give a shit what you can do. So when I got in the ring, it's a pity that nobody, that, that they didn't, the sky cameras didn't watch me in the ring. For when Carl came out, because when Carl came out behind from behind the curtains and his names up in lights, I was actually stood on a neutral corner of the ring, shouting, come on, come shout me. I've never done that. I'd never done it before. I'd never done it after. I'm shouting my ass, come on. And you see Carl look up at me and his eyes go kind of wide as say, and then he's like, got that mean look. Come on, I'm shouting my head off, stood on the, on, on the corner, on the probably second or third row up. 
so he can see me as it's coming through. And I'm screaming and shouting because I know in his head, he thinks I'm a runner. He thinks I'm a bottler. He thinks he's going to walk through me. So I want him to understand you're seeing somebody you've never met before. And so, so as he's walking through, then he gets in the ring. You see me, I've just got down off the corner. We see us like two lines. Let's see, right, let's see what you got. He walked to his corner and Brendan said, you're right. I went, yeah, Brendan. Because he thought I'd lost the plot. I'd not lost the plot. I was just pissed off. Uh, and so, so he said, you're right, yeah, Brendan, I'm all right. He went, all right, good, good lad. And, and so I can remember the fight started. And, uh, and as he was throwing his shots, I'm thinking, he actually doesn't hit that. Is he just tipping and tapping? Is that what he's got? And, um, and I can remember going back to one of the rounds, after one of the rounds, and it, and it was a line Brennan just said, tip, tap, and finish on the jab. And he tapped me on the forehead, finish on the jab. I thought, what did you do that for? Walk me up, finish on the jab. All right? Yeah, Brennan. Boom, I was like a robot. Straight, everything he said, do. Everything he said, do. Jab, 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 do. Move, slam, jab, move, slip. Everything he said, I did. Stuck to the letter of the law. Uh, it came to the fourth round, and it was just too easy to be too good to eat. I'm thinking, is he that bad? Again, I'm thinking, or oh, am I that good? Now I'm thinking, am I that good, or is he that bad? Because when he was throwing shots, not one hurt me. He hit the arm, hit the body, the skin, the heart. And because at times I didn't back off, I was stood there, stayed in the pocket. It was actually very comfortable staying there with him, toe to toe, and letting the shots go. And it was actually coming. I thought. His balance is off. There's something not right with this kid here. And then in the fourth round, I popped him with a shot. And there was nothing in the shot. Jab, jab, turn the jab into, into a hook. Boom. Right hand over the top. Boom. He dropped. But it wasn't even that hard on. It was just a fat one. So I knew when he went down from that, I thought, this fight is done. If he's going down from that, I hit him hard with bad intentions. He ain't getting up. So when it came around to the fifth round... I don't think the referee should have stopped the fight. That's my honest opinion. Uh, uh, but when Carl's letting the shots go, Carl likes to play possum. He likes to pretend he's hurt. Then you're going to get him. Then whack, he comes back and gets you. And I knew that. But before, in the press conference, I said, don't play that game with me because I'll finish you off. And so and so, Carl's like, he's a bit smug, but he's a bit crafty. And, and so he started to wobble all over the place. He didn't call me. And I was letting the shots go. They were hitting him, skimming him, hitting him, skimming him. But the referee was stood behind him. So because his head's wobbling all over the place and his footwork's all over the place, the referee jumped in and stopped it because they looked like they were solid shots. They, they looked like I was hitting him and making him wobble. But he was just hitting him, skimming him, hitting him, hitting his shoulder, hitting his chest, putting him off balance. And the referee jumped in. Now, in my head, I'd planned my victory speech. I'd planned my victory stance. I'd planned it all because I knew in my head what I'm going to do. I knew I was going to win. I had this speech. I said, when you win, just be cool. Just stand in the middle of the ring. Look around like an animal. You know, just be, just be cool. As soon as the referee jumped in and stopped it, it was like some uh, an angel lifted the weight of the world off my shoulders. All the abuse, all the all the slagging I got, it's like an angel just took it off his shoulders and I dropped to my knees and I started crying. And as I'm falling down, I'm like, Johnny, get up! This is what I'm having a conversation with myself. Start blubbering. And Dominic, Dominic gets in him and get up, get up, white face. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That wasn't the plan, right? <laughs> I had the speech ready. And so I got up, wiped my face and stood there. I'd like, so you could see, I was a proper cry, baby. And uh, I stood there and then, and then we went for the interview and uh, ringside. And I remember going for it. And Carl was going mad. He was going mad at everybody. No, no, you shouldn't have stopped it. 
man at Frank Warren, man at the referee, man at everybody. I get it. I understand it. Carl, it took Carl eight years to speak to me again after that fight. But I can remember, I thought, I don't care, you've lost. Not my problem. You do, you lot deal with that. I went to the ringside for the ringside interview. And as I went for the interview, um, and as it comes, the camera comes to me, if you watch it on YouTube, you see I'm like shouting someone in the, in the crowd. And this guy did a, a gun, a gun sign, as if to say, Nelson, and pointing the gun. I'm like, and so I'm like, shit, I'm swearing, yeah, bring it on. My work, my language is a bit bluer than that. And um, and Brendan pushed me on the, on the back. And so I turned around to do the interview. To carry on with it, Brendan, um, my speech, even the speech I had in my head, didn't come out of my mouth. Because Brendan said, uh, straight away, I went into, I'm a product of the gym. I went to the gym with no natural talent, no natural ability. I am the gym. I am a product of Brendan Ingle. And it just came out. It wasn't something I'd planned because but I wanted to give credit where credit was due uh, because I thought I would never have done this. I'm world champion. Eh? And that night, I believed, and all the time I was world champion, I believed I was the best cruiserweight in the world. And it doesn't matter if I was, but I believed I was. There's not many people who are world champions that think they're the best in the world. WBC, WBA, IBF. I believed I was the best in the world. And that's why and I wanted to give credit to Brendan because he changed a kid from 13 amateur fights, winning only three, losing his first three professional fights to, into a world champion. And so I, I felt I wanted to give him something I couldn't buy. I couldn't give him. So I wanted to give him credit because it was his way of doing that to, to the establishment to say, you know what, and look he, what he's done. And he believed in you, Johnny, when you didn't even believe in yourself. He was the only one that believed in me. And that's including me. I didn't believe in me. And so, and, and so that's why afterwards, I, I, I always pay homage to it because he saw in me things that I didn't see and nobody else did. He put confidence and, and, and strength in me that nobody ever could. And so and that's why I said after that fight, I didn't give credit to my wife and kids. I didn't keep, keep, give credit to, to my mum, my, my family, my mates. I gave it to Brendan because I know he was that, the closest person to me that got me through the good and bad, and I knew that night I'd never lose it in the ring. Yeah, a, I love the I love the um, that journey with you and Brendan because he, I mean, he believed in you even when things were going wrong. He still believed <laughs> in the overall plan, didn't he? Yeah. he? Still believed it'd get there. You know what I used to hear people say to Brendan, "Kick him out of the gym. He's rubbish. He's no good." Dominic Ingle even said when it's coming through, "Dad, what are you wasting your time on him for?" I remember Dominic saying that coming through when he first started, started in the gym with him. And Brendan said, be patient. The, the difference between Dominic and Brendan is, Brendan is a people person. Brendan will, 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 will cajole and, and mould and talk and spend time educating you. Dominic, because he saw so many fires that his dad fell in love with, break his heart and leave, he wasn't willing to, to, to waste time on people that he didn't think wanted it enough. And the way I was in the gym, I, I, I was like a, I, I didn't look like a fighter that really believed himself, that really wanted it. So, not just stop. I, I hear many people say, why are you wasting time on him? Brendan stuck it out. He, he, he put the reputation of our gym on the line, the history of 40 years before I got there on the line. Because remember, I put the, I, I, the reputation of our gym in the, in, the, in the cauldron because of my performance against Carlos de Leon. So he thought, all of Brendan Ingle's fighters are like that. So, 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 and he still stuck by me. He still had faith in me after I, after I'd basically embarrassed him 
Barristan's legacy and banished all the parties he'd had before me. Uh, but he still stood by me. And I thought, and that's why I'll always stand on his shoulder, stand by him and say, you know what, good man, all the way through. Did you, I love hearing all the, uh, I love hearing the inside track and that that's some elite level shithousery there from Nelson with the carrying on to the uh, press conference and getting inside Carl Thompson's head. But did you give any thought to what you might do should you lose? Now, I know that fighters are super focused and they'll often say, it never even crossed my mind. I always find that very hard to believe because there are so many hours in the day in the build-up to a fight and so much private time and long nights of the soul, if you like. But had you thought about, would, could that have been it maybe if you'd lost? Yeah, that was, that was it in my head because I had too much pride to, to carry on uh, because then, therefore I'm a journeyman. I'm a prostitute. I'm going out to, for the money. And so when I, when I can remember going in, I said to my wife, you know, if I don't win, I'm going to have to get a proper job. That's me done. You know, she she worked she worked three days a week. She was an insurance underwriter. Um, um, I'd, I'd committed so much time to boxing, and, and I was 32 years old, and time was more or less run out for me to get myself a trade in something else. But I'm still young enough to get a decent, get a check kind of job. But I said, if I don't win tonight, I'm done. I'm not going to box on. I'm not going to just take over and be British champion. I'm, I'm done. I'm out of here because it's never going to happen. And the reason why I said that and with, with real belief is because if I couldn't do it that night, after all the things I'd been through in my life, I was never going to do it. You couldn't go through any worse experiences than I did for me not to learn from it. You couldn't have such, such pedigree around you. Naz, Ryan Rose, Fidel Castro-Smith, Harold Graham, Brian Anderson. I could, the list could go on. I was around pedigree. So when I look back, and I, I, you couldn't have so much opportunity and so much chance and not succeed. So if I'd have lost, it wasn't written for me. And I would have, I would have packed in. And me and my wife had that conversation. She said, you're going to have to get a job. We're not just going to my wage. She, she told me that. And so um, I, we joked. And I said, I think what made me win was the fact that you said I had to get a job. Um, um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I won't lie to you. If I didn't win, I was done. I was out of there. The, the thought of getting a job put enough fear in you. Yeah, that's what I'm, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I thought, Joe, I, I, I can't do with somebody telling me what to do. Like, I just thought, a job? Jesus. I've had one job in my life, and then and I boxed the rest of the time. Uh, but it put the fear of God into me. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'd be a civilian, wouldn't I? I'm like, no. Nah, I suppose it's the arrogance of most sportsmen. Um, but I just thought, and she kept jokes. She, well, she didn't joke. She said, you know, when you're getting a job, because she'd worked eight, she worked 12 hour shifts up in Leeds. And so she'd leave the house about 6.30 in the morning and I'd have the kids uh, at home. Um, and uh, and so she, I knew it wasn't fair on her. Uh, but, uh, and I was, she, I could box. You know, I could box. I was, I was a stay at home dad with India. And um, so, uh, and so I just, I just thought, no, nah, I won't lose this. I can't lose. There was too much against me uh, uh, to, to, to put it on the line. Well, it's just amazing how big a victory can be, particularly in boxing, because as we discuss on, on numerous occasions, you can rise high with a good win and you can fall so far with a defeat. And, and as you just said, if you'd lost, then that would have been it. But you didn't lose, you won. And then that led on to another seven, eight years of being 
WBO champion, a record number of defences, and that got you a second career in television when you'd finished boxing. So that, that win in 1999, we're in 2020 now, and that win is still... It's still working for you now. I mean, oh, my goodness, yeah. It's, it's still reaping the rewards from that win. Yeah, yeah. You know what? But actually, that win, so most fighters, once they get to, I, I keep saying it, we win the British, you think, yes, that's me done. Europe, yes, even when I won the world title, I achieved something that was near impossible for when I started. It wasn't enough because I thought, is that it? Honestly, I thought, is that, it's got to be more, more to it than this. You know, so, so I wasn't, I was still hungry. I wasn't satisfied. I'm thinking, nah, I want more than this. Just winning the world title. And I, I did believe I was the best. So, so, and that was the difference in, in me and, and many fights. And then that's one thing I feel I had in common with, with and I know it sounds ridiculous, this, with fighters such as Leonard, such as fighters such as, 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 as I don't know, Ali, where you've got to be a fighter that once you've got there, you've still got to have the hunger and desire and so you, you're still chasing it. You've got it. And that's the difference. I'm not saying I was as good as those. What I'm saying is I still had the mental capacity and hunger to keep pushing myself forward. And so, and so I, I did, because I've experienced every aspect of our game, it put me in a, a position to do my job that I do today. I actually like the fact that kids have forgotten our box because sometimes you get some smart Alex saying, what do you know? And I think, God, if you only knew. I was digging through some old photos the other day and, and there were some photos of me and Vitaly Klitschko out in training camp in uh, uh, in Gran Canaria, the German squad and the, and the English squad, and we were all training together out in Gran Canaria. Not not Vladimir, Vitaly, his elder brother, and that was before he boxed Lennox. And so people just didn't, they don't know. But so the experience that that, that fighting has given me and winning the world title gave me, um, I know now doing the job I do is. You've got to have, have experiences to get wisdom, wisdom, and that's why I can do the job I do. We're leaving that one, going back to the Andy Stroud fight. I mean, 1989, Michael Watson, Nigel Ben. I mean, that, that really, even though that was a loss for Ben, that was probably the start of what made him really good, wasn't it? He learned from that defeat to Watson. He went out to America. I think he, he was sparring with the likes of, well, who was it, Doug DeWitt? And, or, 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 Doug Doug DeWitt, yeah. yeah. Aaron so Barkley, yeah. And, 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 that, and that's why... So I, 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 it gave me strength to look back at my career and think, wow, look what you've done. So when it came to boxing Carl Thompson, I looked at where I'd been. I'd looked at where I'd looked. I'd been high, I'd been low. Remember, I'd been ridiculed and so from being a, a potential hero on the front of boxing news fighting Carlos De Leon, Johnny B. Good, win the fight. And then afterwards, it was like proper everywhere. Was, I was hammered. So I knew that um, when it came to boxing Carl, and when I became champion, no other fighter in the world was as experienced as me, no matter what they did in the amateurs. And, 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 and even though I'm still in, in awe of, of, of guys that have turned professional but were outstanding amateurs, when I hear them all talk about representing the country, I'm like a fan thinking, oh, my God, really? You know, I think you've done it, Matt, when you've been sat with people and you said, I've boxed here then. I'm like, shit, I can't even join this conversation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, because I, wasn't even a, I wasn't even a novice champion. So, 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 but, and I always say, so it, even though you've done well as a, a, an amateur, it can be intimidating for, for, for some fighters when you turn pro. It intimidated me when, I, when guys would get in and they'd have loads of badges on the shorts and I'd think, shit, he's got pedigree. So I just had to learn my job in public. I always find it really interesting when 
you've got a fighter who did it the way you did it and success comes quite late, uh, not just in boxing, an athlete in, in any sport, because when you manage to finally scale that peak, you probably appreciate, well, not probably, almost certainly appreciate the view more because of how hard it's been to get up there. But at the same time, staying there, you'll desperately want to, but the journey up there may have taken so much out of you that you just can't stay there for long. So the fact that you, the longevity you showed as a world champion is it's pretty remarkable, to be honest. I mean, how did you manage to keep the fire burning for, for that long? Yeah, but and I think that's because I didn't have many amateur fights, and and I had to, and as a professional, I had to uh, fight as a professional in the eye of the public. So I was criticised and, and cheered uh, as a professional, but I was still learning my trade. Remember, some amateurs have boxed for ten years before they turn professional, and then then they start uh, fighting as a pro and get experience. Then I'd not. So so when you saw me fighting as a, a, a pro, I was still a complete novice. I, I was a novice when I won the British title. I was a novice when I when I when I boxed for the European title the first time against uh, Marcus Bott in, in Karlsruhe, Germany. I was and so so I can understand the criticism uh, because I was a novice fighting on a on a stage where people could could cast judgment. Uh, so I get that uh, uh, and and so uh, so to me, it's, I just think I deserved it all. I can understand the frustration of, of fans. I can understand. Uh, uh, my journey but I also understand that if I'm having to give fighters advice on on getting through and being a champion to really be a champion I'd make them walk the same path as me I'd send them away as a sparring partner they wouldn't have to lose I'd send them away as a sparring partner I'd make them want to want it themselves I'd, I'd, I'd work on that more than I would physically uh, make them believe in that because once you get that strong in anybody they can do anything they want. And, and I'm my example. I don't need pen and paper to say, uh, do this, that, and the other. My, I'm my example. I know it works because it works on me. And, and, and guys that were much, much better than me never achieved half as what I did. And, and I met these guys. I thought, I thought a guy called Slugger O'Toole for Del Castro Smith, his name is. I thought he was the best fighter that no one knows about outside of England. This guy was bad. Errol Graham, slick. You know, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was honoured to, to 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 be trained alongside Naz. What's this young man grow up from seven years old to do the things he did? You, you talk, you see Anthony Joshua going to New York, and I, we did all that. Michael Jackson's coming in the dressing room. Puff Daddy's there. I'm like, wow. So I was fortunate enough to already live that life. So when I see it now, I smile and think, all oh, right, there's two ways this story will go. And, 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 and you know what, unfortunately, when you see Anthony Joshua boxing in New York, it went the wrong way, but you, the, the option was there. You get taken away by the bright lights and the, the opportunity. You think, oh, my God, it's a big time. Um, and so, so I think experience is everything. And, and if I didn't have the experience I had in and out of the ring, I'd have, I, wouldn't even be, I wouldn't be doing this job. I would never have boxed. I just wouldn't have done it. It, just, it was not my bag. I didn't care enough. I really didn't care enough. I didn't love it enough. And, and I didn't realise I loved it until um, until I actually beat Carl Thompson. And that's, that's when I thought, I like this. I like, I like this. I like this where I am. And that's why I, could, I enjoyed it. Well, I, I do find that it brought a massive grin to my face when you were just taking us through the fight where it, it almost took you to the fourth round of your third world title fight at the age of 32. 
however many fights that was as a professional before it actually, the light bulb went on and you thought, actually, maybe, maybe it's me. Maybe I am good. Maybe he's not shit. It's just, it's, it's extraordinary that, but, it, but that ten, <laughs> the, the 10 years between Andy Strawn and, um, and Carl Thompson, I mean, it's just, if you haven't read Johnny's book, read Johnny's book because it's, it's, it's absolutely mental. Like one minute you're jumping out of a window to nick fruit off a tree in East Germany. The next minute you're being carried shoulder high in a sedan chair in Thailand. I mean, it's, it's like you don't, people don't do that stuff anymore. And do you think, do you think it's kind of a bit of a shame almost that, that that kind of odyssey that you went on now is just not, if somebody wanted to do it, they probably couldn't, could they? Well, it's like Matt said at the beginning, you, you have trainers, you have uh, advisors, you have coaches, you have, you have people that will work on you mentally. And I think and when it comes to boxing, there's, there, there's not many fighters, if any, that, that go through that journey. Because when you go through that journey that way, you then truly believe, I don't need anybody to pat my, you know, you know, massage my ego. I don't need, if someone said good or anything bad about me, it makes no difference because I truly believe in my, I'm completely opposite now. I'm not believing in myself at all. I truly understand what I was capable of doing. So people will laugh and joke and say, you were born this out. I don't care because I knew what I was capable of doing. I knew what I did. I knew what I achieved. So it doesn't make any difference. So if kids go through that same journey I did, they'll never, the adulation or, or the comments of others will never make any difference to them because they know. And you've got that confidence to say, I'm going to leave you ignorant because I know what I can do. I don't have to brag and boast and tell you, well, actually, it's that and the other. And that's why I like the fact that, that kids don't realise a box and they say, well, what do you know? Or I like the fact that, and many times, you used to box. And I smile and think, all right, I've done that bad here. You know, I've got another career where people think, so I've had two careers, which I fell on my path. Some people know the path in life. Some people fall on it. Some people are forced on it. I was forced on mine. Uh, and 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 I didn't want to be there, but once I got there, once I once the penny had dropped, I now know if I put other fighters on that same path as me, they will they will they, they will decide for themselves if they want to be there or not. Because there are many fighters out there now that it'll take one little push off that tightrope and they'll be done. They can't deal with a defeat. They can't deal with a criticism. They can't deal with anything negative happening to them. And so that tells me your longevity in our game will be short-lived because if you did become champion you wouldn't have it for long because you're too too fragile mentally um and that's why you 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 look at certain fighters now there's only probably a dozen fighters out there that i think you know what you become champion you'll stay champion uh and that's what i like just one final one. This this occurred to me when I was looking through your record yesterday. How much of a relief was it when, in your mid late thirties, they decided to stick an extra ten pounds on that cruiserweight limit? Oh my god! <laughs> he actually gave me uh, an extra two years because at the only time I saw thirteen, 13 stone eight, uh, thirteen stone eight was five minutes before the weigh-in. So if I boxed once a year or twice a year, that's the only time I saw it. The rest of the time I'd be walking around about. 15 plus stone, 15 hour stone, near 16 stone. And I thought, and every time it came to it, I thought, I can't make the weight. I just couldn't make the weight. I thought, how am I going to do this? So at one time, I'm one of those fighters where I used to fight in an era where you weighed in on the same day you fought. And so, so in the morning, you'd weigh in, you'd have to, and then you'd eat, and then you'd get into the ring that evening. And you'd be, and you'd be shattered. 
And then fortunately, they change it where you're waiting 24 hours before. So, so, so it was hard. And so once they brought an extra 10 pounds in onto the cruiserweight division, I smiled and thought, thank God for that, because I killed myself towards the end every time. My first professional fight, I was 11 stone 12. My first professional fight. Uh, and by the end of it, I 44 was perfect for me. I just squeezed into it. If I could have done heavyweight comfortably, I'd have done heavyweight comfortably, but I knew I was never a heavyweight. You know, I fought heavyweights, but I knew I could never compete competitively at top level heavyweights. So there's no point in beating chump heavyweights. Uh, I always wanted to fight Gary Mason because I thought he's a heavyweight, but I can outbox him. He's, you, you like to fight these guys where you, you're fastening them, they look the part, and they'd be perfect. And Gary Mason at the time was coming through. I thought, I'd do him. And, and, and so I look at fighters now of that same milk, I think, well, you know what, I get that. Tony Bellew, he, it was, he was like a cherry picker towards the end of his career because he, sparred, he was a heavyweight as an amateur. He was, ended up being a cruiserweight, but he sparred with a lot of heavyweights. And he understood why he could do it. So when he said he wanted to fight certain heavyweights, he could do it because if you're a cruiserweight that can fight, you can beat most heavyweights. It's just the ones that are freakishly big like Wilder, Joshua, uh, Fury, that they've got, you're giving away too much height, uh, length of arms, weight, uh, you know, everything. And so, but most of them, you can beat them because you're too fast and busy for them. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Uh, it's been great fun, this again. And those were two two good ones to pick out, the the fight against Andy Strong for that, that British title when you were 13 and 5, and, and the Super 10 at Finsbury Park, and what a crazy kind of night that was. I've heard so many different stories from so many people down the years as to what it was like to be there. And then 10 years later, third and, as you said, what would have been your final opportunity to win a world title against Carl Thompson. Uh, and there was an awful lot that happened in between. And we'll keep this series going because I think it's going to be a little while yet before the three of us all see each other uh, at ringside or, or down at Sky. Hopefully not too long if everything goes well in the next few weeks but um i think we're all itching to get some to get some live boxing back it's it's getting underway again in america um by the time this goes out this week actually the 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 few days around when people will be listening to this so people will be able to have a good look at that and see how it goes and 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 hopefully it won't be too long for us either but everybody in the meantime just uh, stay safe stay well and we'll be back soon look out to miss Lottie and old Lucy Brown, yes, that line falls on the right, babe, not that Maggie's back in Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No 
purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.